Welcome to the TIFF podcast, where we interview registrars and former registrars about their experience on the UK Public Health Specialty Training Scheme. The aim of this podcast is that of offering a wide panoramic view of what specialty training can offer and provide some suggestions and inspiration to those who are planning their next placement or would like to, to join the training in public health. This episode of the TIFF podcast will look into one of the areas of specialty training that are often neglected and that some of us develop informally and independently alongside it. Advocacy and politics are, in my opinion, a substantial part of what public health is about, and they can take many forms and be done in a range of settings. Our guest today is certainly among the registrars that in recent times have distinguished themselves the most in terms of political activism, and she has done so mainly within the British Medical Association, also known as the BMA. As chair of JDC, she held her ground for years in the junior doctor's contract negotiations with the government. Afterwards, she was my predecessor as public health registrar's committee chair. Now, as elected chair of the European Junior Doctors Association, her qualities of organisation and leadership have obtained recognition at the continental scale and, I would dare to say, at a most important moment in times of Brexit. Kitty's curriculum is so rich of activities and positions held while in training that I've had to break the tradition of having guests introduce themselves to spare from the embarrassment of making such a long list herself. I will add a few more to give a clear idea. Medical doctor, did hospital training in London, PhD in epidemiology King's College London, then joined the public health training scheme, all the while holding a range of positions within the BMA in JDC, BMA Council, Public Health Committee, International Committee, work which ultimately resulted in her being awarded a fellowship of the BMA. I called you a registrar, Kitty, but it is news of these last few weeks that you have become a CCDC at PHE. Congratulations and welcome to the podcast. Was I accurate enough in my introduction? Would you still like to say a few words to introduce yourself to our listeners and say on what you're working now and where you trained? Thanks, Dino, and thank you for having me in the podcast um, today. Um, yes, so I... I'm a medical doctor, as you said, by background. I qualified actually quite a long time ago in 2004 and did medical training and my PhD, as you said, before joining public health. Um, I did a lot of my public health training in health protection um, and did that mainly less than full time whilst also undertaking roles with the British Medical Association. Um, and I uh, finished training in March of this year. And yes, I've started in April um, at um, a, a CCDC post. Um, and yeah, it's going really well so far. So that's great. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I heard you've also recently returned from Brussels, where you went to deliver a speech on the impact of Brexit on health and medicine. Would you like to tell us more about it? Sure. So so um, as you mentioned, I've um, since the beginning of this year been president of the European Junior Doctors Association, uh, representing the interests of um, roughly 300,000 uh, junior doctors across Europe. And in that role, I was invited to speak in the European Parliament at an event hosted by one of the MEPs, um, which was looking at the impact of Brexit on health. And in particular, my role was around talking about the pan-medical 
workforce and the impact of Brexit on that. And it, and in particular, I mean, that breaks down to many things, but looking at how Brexit is going to affect the health and public health workforce in the UK, as well as in Europe, um, how it will affect research and the quality of the research that we're able to produce in the UK and also looking ahead because a lot of the provisions that have been talked about are for doctors who are currently working or or practitioners who are currently working in in the UK and about getting permanent residency for them however actually we know that that the UK is a very desirable location for for practitioners across Europe and doctors across Europe and how that may continue in the future and why that's really important. So I had quite a broad remit and only 15 minutes to speak, but it was a it was a it was a really interesting um to be able to have the opportunity to speak on these issues. Um and it's a bit worrying that we don't really have solutions at the moment. Um so yeah. Thank you. And you also recently visited a range of other European countries in, in which occasion? So a lot of the work that I've done have been in has been in relation to, um, as I said, the European junior doctors role. We I travel a lot to our our member countries. I've been to Croatia, to Latvia, uh, mainly talking about uh, for meetings um, or to speak at conferences there, um, as well as for our regular meetings in Croatia, for example, they held a conference looking at the topic of free movement. And it's topical with Brexit. It's also very topical. Um, in many countries around Europe, the idea that um, if a doctor is training in a country, um, whether they should be made to stay in that country for a period of time after they qualify or the penalty that they have to pay. And in countries like Croatia and Slovenia, you're talking about 20, 30 times people's salary that they're being asked to pay. Um, So it's just not, it's, it's, keeps people in the country but not because they want to which goes against all the principles of free movement that we know that um, public health trainees and other trainees really um, really want to travel in order to get their skills and to learn in different environments and we know that ultimately that's really good for the health systems they come back to as well not just where they go and personally for the skills they learn so um, that that was a particularly interesting meeting. Indeed. As I said, uh, you have for many years represented doctors and public health registrars and have been very active in all parts of the BMA, sitting in the BMA General Council and in a myriad of other committees. When did, you, when did your keen interest for medical politics and trade unions start? That's a good question. Um, so so I, I come from a family of medics and it's probably safe to say that my family is quite split in the fact that most that my, my mother and my sister, who are both doctors, have absolutely zero interest in trade unionism. In um, they, they, they are members because because they're, they're family members of myself and my father, but they they don't they're not really very interested. However, my father was, has been involved in politics, kind of student politics and in medical politics since he was um, a student. And actually, he was involved at a local level with the BMA. Um, and and as growing up, I, I was very aware of the organisation. Um, I went through, as many people do, I went to medical school and really didn't pay much attention to anything apart from going about doing my degree and having a great time and didn't really pay any attention to 
medical politics or trade unionism. But towards the end of my time, um, the BMA started having a um, a medical students committee in my um, my medical school, and it struck me that perhaps it would be the time. Um, to get involved, particularly because we didn't have a lot of uncertainty about um, how our training was going to be once we finished our um, undergraduate training. Um, and actually, probably the trigger for me was someone telling me not to do it. So I was told, oh, you know, you don't want to do it. It's not a good idea. You've got to knuckle down and concentrate on your finals. And um, and actually, the, the rep that was before me said, you know, I don't recommend you do it. In fact, I, I don't think you should do it. And for me, it was quite an unusual situation. So I said, well, actually, I don't think you're right. I think that actually, I, I, I want to do it, but I think I'd be good at this. And actually, you need someone who's been through medical school, who's towards the end of their time to go and do it. Um, so I took on the role. And, um, and it kind of went from there, really. Um, I think the way, reason why I stayed involved was because it's quite addictive in some ways, actually, because I, and by that, I mean that I think that I think that knowledge and the understanding of the power of of knowledge and being knowledgeable, knowledgeable about your terms and conditions and what you actually are entitled to is something that, first of all, a lot of people don't know. But secondly, if you do know and you see the impact and what you can achieve and you can see that you are able to um, make your your life and the life of people around you better, that's that's a great feeling. And actually, that's what I've, I've really thrived of for now the last 15 years. Um, so, yeah, that's why I've done it. Thank you. Thank you for this this, this complete answer. And, and were your classmates in university, those that told you not to do it in general, as keen as you to engage in representative roles? Were they, were they doing it to keep you away or was there a bit of apathy and nobody was interested? There's always apathy. And I think it's one of the reasons why people struggle to to find the momentum to keep on doing things. And it's interesting because now, 15 years later, one of my very close university friends is is involved in trade union work and has been for the last few years and is is very and now there's something that we can talk about aside from from other things because we're both involved in it but that was 10 years later after I started doing it but no at the time it was very much out of the comfort zone and out of out of what my friends and my friendship group were doing yeah I know it is a big question, so please give me a synthetic answer. But what have you learned during your work as a representative? I think part of it is is what I said before, really, that I think you learn that actually being aware of your entitlements and being in, aware of 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 what you can achieve by putting in actually relatively little effort, um, but being but knowing what you should be getting in your contracts or in your training and standing up for yourself um knowing that that can improve your life and the life of people around you is probably the biggest thing that I've learned because you always wonder well why why would people put themselves out there and why would people um speak out um why why what is the what's the point really and actually I think that when you see the results, it's it makes it worthwhile. And actually, doing that at the same time as training in public health, there have been huge similarities because that's that's what I've just described, that idea of speaking out and 
having knowledge and the power of it is really what we do on a day by day basis in public health as well. So it's been really interesting to do the trade union and representative work at the same time as training in public health. Thank you. And this leads perfectly to the next question, because I, I, wanted, I wanted to ask you, do you think activism, union representation, advocacy should have a more prominent role in the training, in the curriculum? Um, I think that advocacy and representation is very important. I think there are many different ways in which people um, people can do it. Not everyone would feel as would feel as able or comfortable to do perhaps some of the things that I've done in my time. You know, walking out of contract negotiations was hard. It was very difficult. Um, and But I think that's quite an extreme national example of it. I think that there, there are elements of activism and, and representation and, and the work that we do in advocacy that, that does have a place currently in our training, but really is fundamental to what we do. So even if you're um, not the kind of person you can see yourself um, taking on some of the more kind of, what might, shall we call it, militant roles, I think there is these are core skills that we can all adapt in our own way and um, and that there, there were huge amounts of um, competencies in a really practical sense because I was doing this alongside my training. Um, it was acknowledged by my training program that actually I was getting a huge amount of experience and competencies and things that actually people really struggle to get during the training program. Some of that advocacy, leadership, representation stuff um, and so it actually counted for my training and, and I was allowed to include it and get signed off for it. So there, it was acknowledged by my training program. Um, but I think that it's something that we can all incorporate in whatever role we're in um, and, and do more of in the future. So, uh, yeah, I do think that. Thank you. And do, do you think that recent generation of medics and in specific, specifically public health professionals do understand the importance of actively engaging with the political process a bit beyond maybe the curriculum? So I think that I think that people do. Um, I think they do understand the importance of engaging with the political process. I think that the problem can come with working out how or how within the constraints of the work we do um, that someone can can do it, can can actually engage in a meaningful way. Um, I think that I think that you see that people are quite engaged, particularly in public health, which is a very political specialty, um, and and value the importance of engaging with kind of local politics or national politics. But I do feel that there is a bit of a mismatch within how that might follow through in terms of the opportunities or if people are worried that that could impact their job or or their career career advancements or whatever that might be. Um, whereas actually because they they naturally fit together, public health and politics, I think it's something that we need to work out better how public health professionals can engage with the political process and with politics meaningfully because we are the best advocates for for health and for health matters um, within the political system. 
Yeah, yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And and now I'll move a little bit more onto the, I would say, the nitty gritty here of the of your work as a, as a representative. So you've been very involved with the contract negotiations and the new terms and conditions have lights and shadows, especially for public health. Do you think that the loss of pay protection, for example, will severely impact our ability to recruit more experienced senior clinicians, which are important in, in public health? How can we resolve this issue in your mind? So I think the loss of pay, pay protection was um, was a problematic for many reasons. Um, so what we, we know that a, a large proportion of people coming onto the training program, as an example, um, will have spent many years in other specialties. And and now with the loss of pay protection, the um, the pay, their pay would drop if they were to return back down to the bottom. So I think that I, th- I don't think there's a simple answer as to how we can resolve this, to be perfectly honest. I I think that there are, we need to try and work out how, like who we are losing and what skills we need as as a public health workforce. And, and, and I think that, you know, it is often the experience, as you said, the experience of people who've worked as senior clinicians in other specialties um, who have then moved across to public health. And I think we need to think about how we can retain those skills then within the public health workforce. I think though, I think that there are there are lots of issues around the loss of pay protection because we know that that the pay that pay protection um, also applies for um, for people who are um, undertaking research and um, for people during their training as well. And actually, we know that public health is a very academic specialty. And so what we don't want to do are to lose our academics and our research orientated folk um, out of public health and out of public health training um, because they feel significantly disadvantaged um, for undertaking that research, because we need people to be at the cutting edge of research and I think that's another issue that we need to think about the solutions I don't know it's the million dollar question isn't it how we how we manage to retain um the skills and the people we need um and I'll be very interested to see how this develops and and do you think that public health professionals are becoming or risk becoming less vocal less independent and less able to take a political stand as advocates of the population since the move to local authorities? So I think it kind of comes back to what I was saying before, because I think that I think as a as a specialty, we haven't quite worked out or there are very few examples of people who've really been able to to speak out in a political sense whilst working as kind of civil servants or in a local government setting. And as more and more of the jobs are moving across to local authorities or to kind of more civil service orientated settings, I think we need to work out how to reclaim our voice because the voice of public health is exceptionally important to be able to speak out to protect the vulnerable in society and for our advocacy roles. That's clearly very important. Um, how how that can happen i mean, i think i think social media is a really good example actually that uh, that people you often hear public health um professionals um talk about how they don't really feel that they're able to comment or comment widely on twitter um because 
because of the position they're now working in or the environment they are working in. Um, and and to be honest, there must there is a way. There has to be a way that that these these roles, the kind of work you do, and the being able to speak out independently, have to be able to sit side by side. It does. It's able to happen in other professions. I just feel that we haven't quite sorted this yet in public health. So there's a bit more work that needs to be done, and probably leadership needs to come from the top, so that people feel that it is okay to speak out and to um, to give their views in, and be political. And uh, what advice would you give to a public health trainee that wanted to gain some political advocacy experience and skills? Is it necessary to go part-time to cover certain roles? I think it depends on you, and I think it depends on what role you're really looking at. So I, I was able to have a lot of... Um, a lot of experience and actually my first year of chairing the junior doctors committee I was wasn't part-time I worked full-time but I was actually seconded by my training program two days a week to my BMA role so I was in training really three days a week but I was um, I was actually full-time on the training program and the reason why they did that was because it was a real acknowledgement of the skills that I was going to learn and how important it was to my future career as a public health physician. Um, and so I think there are there are opportunities that come up. There are lots of out-of-programme opportunities in some of the leadership fellowships and the DARSI fellowships and other um, positions that are available both locally and nationally. But actually, um, I think they're... they're there are advantages now that we are in local authorities and local government to gain political experience and political advocacy experience at a local level as well. And some some trainees, um, as I understand it, have had had really good experiences of gaining that during their training in normal placements too. So I think it's definitely worth having those discussions um with with tpds um and supervisors to see what is out there and what is available because if you don't ask you you won't, you won't find out really <laughs> thank you and and moving a little bit away from from uh, politics apart from these extracurricular activities let's call them what what ro- rotations and placements have you enjoyed the most among the more traditional ones um so i think i i have two placements that probably spring to mind really um and and the first one being my first health protection team placement um mostly because i um as we've mentioned before i'm a medic by background i was worked in the hospital for several years and i have to admit i absolutely was convinced that i wouldn't like health protection and my first my first educational supervisor um, when i worked in the local authority had been a ccdc and he said to me I think you'll like it. And I said, well, I don't think I will really because it's going to be full of lots of SOPs and rules. And, you know, I'm a bit used to being a bit more freestyle with things. And he just (laughs) laughed at me. And actually, for me, it was the real surprise of starting, starting a placement and immediately feeling a real kind of affinity for for the team that I was working in, the work I was doing and really understanding um, the importance of the um, acute response that we were undertaking as part of the health protection team and um, 
and the risk assessments that we were having to make. And I really, really enjoyed it. I was shocked, genuinely very shocked um, that I enjoyed it as much as I did. Um, and, and I think it's such a basic placement because it's one of the core placements uh, that it's it was particularly nice to that it wasn't just a tick box exercise. It was something that I thought, well, actually, I, I think I might be able to do this for for my career. Um, the other one, of the other placements I did a bit later on, a couple of years later, was um, a placement with the Extreme Events team. It's the Extreme Events and Health Protection team in London, um, which I think traditionally has been an, a national treasure. I think it can be a national treasure placement, um, but I did it as part of my kind of senior health protection training. And what was particularly interesting about that was it was quite a small team, and the Extreme Events team deal with the effects of environment and weather on health. Um, but at the time when I and another registrar joined, about three members of the team left. And so there were very, very few of us. And it was one of the first placements that I did where we were given a huge amount of responsibility. So I, I led on I led on cold, like cold weather, the whole of cold weather for, for the best part of the year and for um, across a very kind of obviously cold winter um, and it was really interesting to see as a registrar to get that level of experience and going to ministerial meetings and going to other departments to to uh, get involved on behalf of PHE um, I was able to do supervision of um, a, another registrar who was not a public health registrar um, but I gained a lot of skills at that point that actually with hindsight looking back um, were great for my training and were really appropriate but I think that if I hadn't done that placement or done it at that time I, a lot of it could have passed me by as well so sometimes we get a bit worried when we join a team and everyone has left because we worry why how it's going to affect our training experience but this was a great experience and I'd really actually recommend the extreme events team to anyone. And, and you mentioned a term that we have raised in a few of our podcasts, national treasure. Do you think that all regions offer the same experience? Or do you think, as some I heard some say, that London trainees get a richer experience than the rest, given the higher concentration of national, national agencies within the deanery? Should, in your mind, access to national treasures be reformed? So I think it I think there has been a reform that's probably still going on at the moment for national treasures because um to be honest, I never applied specifically to a national treasure post um, thinking, oh, this is a national treasure post. I um, I did what in London we, we do kind of a health protection circuit of, of uh, training posts when we if we've kind of identified that we're more interested in health protection. But I think some of those posts are those that that might be considered to be um to be national treasure posts such as the extreme events team such as working at Collindale and actually in all the all the roles that I did I worked alongside mostly trainees who weren't from London even though these were London jobs so I think that access is there but it's a bit patchy and obviously if you live in London it's easier to get to some of these these posts although that that may change if, when more agencies are moving out of London now. So as long as we've got kind of the ability to everyone for everyone, if they wish to apply, to be able to apply and for there to be equity across that, um, I think that I think that's definitely needed because you do 
in a certain way, you expect that a um, public health registrar coming out of their training in one part of the country, particularly if you're specialising in, as I did, in, in health protection, you expect someone to have a similar level of skills and training to someone in a different part of the country. That's just standard, really. And so we need to ensure that that happens. And if if we think that there are certain um, certain advantages to being in a national treasure post, um, then it should be open to everyone to be able to take that opportunity if they wish to. Thank you. We're we going back a little bit on, on your international BMA commitment. So you've traveled quite a lot with it. And uh, now with this European chair role, uh, what has been the trip that in particular has given you the most in terms of learning and understanding of cultures, systems and public health? That's a good question. Um, I think the trip that um, has given me the most is, is a trip that wasn't associated with the BMA or my European junior doctor role. Um, when I was towards the beginning of my training, I was um, fortunate to go on a study visit to as part of what was called the Yugismet Prev um, program, which basically is the it stands for the European Group for the Improvement of Specialized Medical Training in Preventative Medicine and Public Health. Quite a long, long title. <laughs> a mouthful. Um, yes. Yeah. So basically, this was a European project, and um, there were different centres across Europe, and they they basically got a grant in order to do some study visits to go and promote. Um, to promote kind of learning between different European countries. And I was really fortunate to go on one of the study visits um, because uh, I think it was the London training programme that, for reasons that I genuinely have no idea about, um, was the UK partner. So there was Spain and uh, Spain, Bulgaria, Vienna, Hungary, um, and the UK, there might have been some somewhere else as well. And and groups went between the different countries in order to look at training um, and to look at what people were learning and how public health actually was functioning in the different countries, as well as slightly more research-based kind of studies and um, surveys being completed before this big overall report was written. And so I went to Bulgaria um, as part of that, along with one of my registrar colleagues. And we were there for about three days and we got a real insight into how how different public health um, was and how it was mainly being run out of universities um, and how how also how how um, it made us feel very lucky that, that about the status of public health in our country in the UK, because the value placed on public health in the system in Bulgaria in Sofia where we went was very very small and so the even the professors and the the people who were the national experts and were being called by the government whilst we were in the meeting were treated really like like they were they were they were trainees and they were very very junior so it was it was very interesting to see how in a in a country that was really at its infancy of public health um, and to learn from how they were at the same time really trying to bring in a lot of um, kind of youth education and children and young people education to start with the younger population because to be honest they were really very unsure 
what they could do with the older population amongst with their resources. So that was a it was a fascinating trip actually, and it's probably one of the best insights to how different we are and actually how progressive we are um, and what resource we have, even though it may feel like relatively little resource um, at our fingertips in the UK compared to some of our European partners. Thank you for sharing with this with us. And, and from your experience at the frontier of policy and reform, where do you think the profession is heading? Do you agree with the pessimists that depict public health as a terminally ill patient or... Or, or not? <laughs> and can we do more than prescribe palliative care? So I, I think we need to be optimistic about this. I think that that we, that the politics, because public health is political um, and politics works in various cycles, it can often feel that that preventative medicine and public health is is always on the back foot because um, because we're trying to achieve longer term results and um, and the um, the politicians and those in power change with relative frequency compared to us trying to just get our job done. I think that that we need to really think of. I think we're in a great place in certain aspects. I think that we've had we've got a lot of innovation um, that's happening in the um, in the UK at the moment. We have a lot of new techniques. Um, obviously, I'm very based in kind of an infectious disease um, area. But, you know, the impact of, of techniques like whole genome sequencing is going to revolutionise the way that we manage and treat and that public health works in terms of surveillance and other aspects, um, even compared to how where we were a couple of years ago. Um, so I think there's a lot on the horizon. Um, I think that public health does need to does really need to find its voice though um it feels a little bit lost in the arena of many commentators and um everyone everyone being an expert at the moment but actually we are experts and we're and i think we need to reclaim that and be a little bit less apologetic sometimes for for the role that we play within um within the health arena and you also did a PhD during the training, or at least before the training. In your mind, should public health training be more academic than it currently is? And what do you think of the rumours that even the public health masters are now being put into question for cost savings reasons? So I, um, I'm a bit of an academic at heart. So uh, this is I'm probably very biased in my views here, and I, I think that I think that academic, uh, academic research and those elements can mean different things to different people. It doesn't necessarily mean doing a PhD. Um, PhD is right for some people. It's definitely not right for others. And it's a huge commitment. Um, and it does take over your life, as, as I found for many years. And I think, that, um, I think that public health as a specialty is a very academic specialty. It is a very research-based, evidence-based specialty. And we, we, we fight very hard to keep ourselves up to to, to date with the most recent evidence and for that reason I don't think it can avoid being an academic specialty um regarding the masters I mean I gained a lot from my masters um and it went beyond just learning for my part a um I think I mean I I made contacts and networks that have remained with me throughout my um career to date I learned a lot of skills which even though I'm I'm kind of an epidemiologist at heart. I learned a lot of skills around um, more um, qualitative research and 
um, and social science, which I probably wouldn't have learnt otherwise, which which working in um, teams which have people from, from many different um, backgrounds and, and actually where where sometimes the answer isn't to do um, an analytical or a, um, epidemiological study. It's to just go and talk to the people. It's actually much, it's, it's great skills to learn early in your public health career. So I would be very keen for us to, to really do what it takes to keep them, to keep the masters um, as an integral and important part of public health training. Cause I believe it is. I, I do too, and we both had a great experience, I believe. In which in which baskets would you recommend that we're just trying the training put our eggs these days? Should we spread our bets, go wide, or instead we should focus and specialize on a pillar of public health and a sub subset of public health? So I'm I'm kind of a believer that you need to do what 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 you are interested in and what you personally gain the the you, you to gain the skills that you want to gain i'm i i'm not necessarily i've never been one of those people who will do a placement in order to 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 gain or chase certain competencies i i, and I believe that actually you can get most of your competencies no matter which placement you're in so i i really tried during my training to to follow the placements that I thought would be I was interested in, that I thought I would get get something a little bit different for myself. And so I would really encourage people to be quite open minded, because, as I said before, if someone had told me I was going to do health protection at the beginning of my training and do it be now in a CCDC post, I would have absolutely laughed in their face. Um, and, and it's often the things that by the way that by circumstances or a chat with someone or a random conversation in the corridor we hear about experiences or placements or interesting projects that actually turn out to be the best thing that we that we could do or much better than what we may have thought was good for us so I would just really encourage everyone to be open-minded um and to yeah to to keep to not just think oh this is definitely what I want to do when I'm training uh, because you know if I'd done that then I would probably be trying to work in the King's Fund or somewhere that's what I thought I would do so it's it's quite interesting the way these things turn out and we as we're reaching the end of uh, this this episode as we ask uh, of all of our guests uh, where would you advise the registrants spend their study budgets what events conferences or activities do you recommend so um so I did some really interesting things with my study budget. I um I actively looked at courses or interesting um kind of conferences that I could learn something a little bit different. Um and actually I think two of the most interesting things that I did were uh, were were both international. Um I applied and got a scholarship to attend the Johns Hopkins Summer School in Barcelona towards the beginning of my training to do a course around leadership case studies, which is actually an excellent course. Um, and um, I'd really recommend it came recommended from someone else in my training program. And um, and they offer scholarships for the tuition and then study, but you can use study budget to do your um your accommodation and travel um but more recently towards the end of my training i've always had a real interest in refugee and migrant health 
Um, and the WHO in Europe last summer launched their first summer school in refugee and uh, migrant health, which took place in Sicily um, last July. And I quite, I, I kind of had thought, well, that looks quite interesting. I'll apply and see what happens and um, got on. And so I put the case to my TPD because it was slightly outside the box, although it did link back to a lot of infectious disease stuff that I was interested in to say, well, actually, I think this would be a really good experience for me. And actually, I will learn a lot from it. And and it was amazing. It was absolutely fascinating to learn a lot. And it's very topical. And obviously, it's something that does affect us all as well. So in our, with our training. So um, I... I would really recommend thinking slightly outside the box, um, having a chat to people who um, who are, are undertaking work that you're interested in, or or just really following up on links that that organisations such as WHO Europe or ECDC um, are doing. And if anyone is interested in the refugee and migrant health um, summer school, I know that they're recruiting their second summer school currently. So have a look and see what um, what is out there. Thank you. Thank you for the suggestion. I, I am sure that a lot of uh, the our listeners will, will pick up on this advice. And we have reached the end of this episode. Is there, is there anything else that you would like to say as a close? I think that, um, I, I, I think that public health training, it's a, real, it's a real privilege, our training. And I, I mean that really because we, there are certain components that we need to, need to do, but we get a lot of freedom to pick and choose our different rotations um and we've got a lot of opportunity because obviously public health is such a such a broad specialty um well probably some of the best advice i i received was towards the beginning of my training when one of one of my um fellow registrars we were talking about you know how we were going to get signed off for various things or or what placements we were going to do and she and she turned around to me and said um so the thing is kitty with public health that no really isn't an answer like if someone says no that something isn't possible you're then that that's that's not really an acceptable answer so you just need to go back to them and work (laughs) out how to make that no a yes and she was actually absolutely right you know I know that some people be oh my goodness that's quite a quite a cocky thing to say but actually she was absolutely right because because Actually, one of the things that I've learned in all of my um, non my, my BMA work as well is that this is all about making making my needs or your needs match. And so it's perfectly possible for me to achieve what I want to or to do what placement I want to while still achieving what you need me to do at the same time. So um, we're quite good at being innovative in public health. So I would really encourage everyone to really embrace that innovation and just really think outside the box um, and to be innovative because I think we are really good at being innovators in public health Um, and so yeah that's really the advice I'd give. And that's very good advice. Thank you Kitty for your time and for having accepted our invitation on the podcast and all the best in your new role as CCDC at PHE. Thank you. Thank you so thank you so much, thank Dino. You, it's been a pleasure. And this concludes the twenty-first episode of the Teeth Podcast. Next month, our guest will be Suzanne Bartington, an academic trainee in the West Midlands, who will tell us about her experience at the interface between politics and public health.
If you have any feedback about the podcast, have a suggestion to make about a registrar or former registrar to interview, or you would like to participate yourself, do please get in touch on SoundCloud. Till then, goodbye.